Good evening. The primary goal of tonight's gathering is to pay respect and honor to the memory of Noreen of Rabbeinu, Barabar, and Lichnesim, Zeshav, Racha. And that's as it should be. But it's an iffy proposition. We have articulate, thoughtful speakers who are all close to, to Moreng Zatzal and who will be able to share insights and feelings. But can we really add to the cupboard of somebody like Rav Aaron Lichtenstein? So I'll admit to a secondary goal, and that is to bring some comfort to us, the mourners. Since Monday morning, I found it hard to be alone, and I've noticed it in others. Around yeshiva, in Alon Shvod, in Shul and Efrat. You see people gathered together, telling stories, sharing Torah from Ravaran, because it makes us feel better. We are individuals in pain, we're a yeshiva in pain, we're a community in pain. And sharing that in a group is cathartic and comforting. And that too is part of tonight. I knew that this Shabbos would be a difficult one, particularly Kriyat HaTorah. I'd been to the Shiva house on Thursday morning, and when Dove Carol read Bezot Yavo Aaron El HaKodesh, people cried. Okay, I didn't remember exactly how often the word Aharon comes up in the parsha, and on Shabbos it was, it was striking. V'lakach Aharon, V'chriv Aharon, V'samach Aharon, over and over again. It was hard, but I was more or less prepared. What surprised me was how hard Kedoshim was. Said another way, I felt Rav Aaron's presence more in Kedoshim than in Achremos. It seemed like every Pasuk was talking about him. Ishimova aviv Who had more Mora'av than Rav Aaron? Lifnei ver Who gave better advice? Who did people go to? Lo telech rachil b'almecha. Would Rav Aaron ever think of? Lo tikom Every Pasuk in Kedoshim seemed to remind me of our Rebbe. But no Pasuk more so than the first Pasuk. Kedoshim tihiyu leilokechem. Kedoshim tihiyu ki kadosh ani Hashem elokechem. What better Pasuk to describe our Rebbe? And Rav Lechensim Zatzal once asked on that Pasuk, what does the word ki mean? And he said, some assume it means kimo, like, in the sense, mahu afata. But Rav Lichnitzin said, it was descriptive of God. God is kidusha ilait, the highest form of kidusha, and our ability to generate kidusha stemmed from the closeness we felt to God and our ability to draw kidusha from God. I want to be careful how I say this, but to me, Part of the loss I feel is that Rav Lichtstein served as a source of Kedusha for us. The closer we felt to him, the more we saw him, the more inspired, and yes, the holier we felt. And now, we individually and as a community are struggling with the loss of that source of Kedusha. And so we gather tonight to talk about the Kedusha of our Rebbe in the Achremot sense of Benon Lamakom and the Kedoshim sense of Benon Lachavero and to try to come to grips with what we've lost, and maybe also as a tentative first step forward in trying to figure out how we move forward.
First speaker, it's my great honor to call on Rabbi Julius Berman, a close friend and confidant of Rabbi Lefkowitz for over 50 years. The Rav Roshi of Yerushalayim was masbid his chaver from Yeshiva Trevron, the Rav Elimelech Bar Shaul, the Rav Roshi of Rehovot. He commenced his hesbid with a quotation from the hesbid of David HaMelech for Yonosan. Tsar li olecho, ochi Yonosan, noamti, noamto limio. I am distressed over you, my brother Yonosam. You were so pleasant to me. Rav Zolti focused upon the choice by David HaMelech of the word ach, brother, in referring to Yonosam. He could understand chaber, reya, yedid, yedid nefesh. That all made sense. But ach, brother? No matter how close a friendship the two may have had, he simply was not a brother. Rav Jolji answered his own question. The key to the Ach relationship was not just the fact that they come from the same parent, but it's much more. As Rav Jolji put it, Ach ein lo tuva. A parent, excuse me, a brother has no exchange. There's no substitute. There's no replacement. When one loses a brother, he simply loses a brother. And that's it. It's over. There is no way to transfer the relationship to another. Ach, That added Rav Jolti reflected his feeling of loss upon the passing of his chaver from Hebron. It is in that sense that I stand before you this evening <laughs> and say as Dora Melech said about Yonosan Sarli Olecha Bochi Aaron no, I'm to leave me out. How do you describe in a few words Rav Aaron Lichtenstein? Brilliance as a Torah scholar, a pedagogue beyond compare, extraordinary piety, courage and selflessness, clarity of vision and purpose. His level of intellectual honesty was matched only by his quest for Emmis, a man of true humility and integrity. The former chief rabbi of Britain, Lord Jonathan Sachs, described Ravarn as a man of great intellect, equally at home in the literature of the sages and of the world, and a master Talmudist, a profound exponent of Jewish thought, a deep and subtle thinker 
who loved English literature, of all things, and whose spiritual horizons were vast. But candidly, I leave to others. I'm not here to talk about any of that this evening. As I say, I leave to others more literate and uh, erudite than I to dwell on these attributes of this unique, very unique, <coughs> multifaceted personality. It is on the next sentence by the chief rabbi that I want to focus for a moment. He goes on. No less impressive was the stature for was the stature as a human being, caring and sensitive in all his relationships, one who honored the fellows, his fellows even when he disagreed with them, a living role model of Jewish ethics at its best. It was 1958, a mere 57 years ago, and we were in the sheer of the Rabban Shoi soil, we were learning the Shabbos. An event took place that would make its mark on the history of the yeshiva and the Torah world. It started with a rumor. Someone mentioned in the Beis Medrash that he had heard that the babe, babe Lichtenstein, was returning to yeshiva from Harvard, having received his PhD there. Who was babe Lichtenstein? The old timers told us he was a young Gilui from Chaim Berlin, but now a full-fledged Goan in the truest sense of the word. Indeed, he was already a legend. Moreover, what is equally relevant to me at least, he was a going in Midas. Looking back as the years went by, if we can only learn to emulate his conduct as the interaction of people, whether his late parents, that's all, whether four or five generations of his own family, or with Rosh Hashiva, his in-laws, his friends, with any and every human being that has an occasion to meet him, we would all be richer for it. I must take a moment to speak about his relationship with his parents. And I know that many of you have witnessed it and actually been there you said that yourself when Rav Aaron took care of his uh, blind, almost deaf father, especially during the Yom Nevoyim, and how he sacrificed his own tefillah to allow his uh, his father to be Mekayim, his father's need for tefillah, whether or not halachically his father was required to do so under his conditions. What well, few know, however, is that serious nefesh by Rav Aaron to his parents well preceded his father's sickness. Rav Aaron and his wife Tova came on Aliyah before his parents. And they had to be there, say in America, for a while for certain reasons. I became very, very close to his parents 
almost as a surrogate because they didn't have their son there anymore. And so I had occasion, quite a few occasions, to relate to his parents. Now these are parents that are that are relatively middle-aged, upper middle-aged, but vibrant. Some of them, one of them, I think she, Mrs. Lichtenstein, was about to retire. I don't believe Yechiel Lichtenstein was ready to retire. For whatever reason, they were, as I say, vibrant, well. But they had occasion, as I say, to talk to me on a variety of uh, different reasons. And what can you do? Rav Aaron wasn't there for them. When they talked about their son, Ravar, you saw and felt the overwhelming, the overwhelming nachas that they had received from their son during his entire life. It was almost as they lived Olam Haba in Olam Hazet. That is the relationship that he had with his parents and that he may or may not realize it, but his parents really, really appreciated it. And they said it in those certain terms again and again and again. Only this past Wednesday, a delegation of Arab workers at the yeshiva came to the shiva house to pay their respects, to express in their way their sense of loss of a man who always treated them with respect as fellow human beings. I honestly believe that I can say without equivocation that Rav Aaron fell within that very select group of Talmud Chachovim that qualified to be allowed into the base Medrash of Rav Gamliel because, as the Gemara Brachis points out, Toho Kiboro. His inner character fully corresponded to that of his exterior. Returning to 1958 and the impending return of Rav Aaron to the yeshiva, I was also warned that I shouldn't be misled by his easygoing, friendly nature. On the basketball court, especially under the basket, his elbows were sharp and he plays rough. Honest, but like everything he does, plays to win. What a change he made to the class. While on the one hand, he was intentionally laid back and tried to blend into the rest of the class, rarely volunteering initially on his own. On the other hand, it wasn't long before we realized that this student was clearly different. Whenever the Rav was searching for a citation, he would look to Rav Aaron, who would immediately respond with chapter and verse. It soon became clear he was a walking encyclopedia Talmudist. Many, especially this past week, have referred to Rav Aaron's humility and integrity. Others have described his acts of chesed, and I'm confident we can spend all evening just skimming the surface of the kindness he has exhibited through the years. And yet, and I say this most respectfully, I don't consider these acts chesed at all. To my mind, an act of chesed is an act that is something that is l'mal l'mal 
something that is a bit or a lot more out of the ordinary, not necessarily expected in a normal course of conduct. But whose normal are we referring to? Certainly not Rav Aaron's. In his normal, kindness was integral. Chesed was not teva. It was part and parcel of his teva as if it was in his genes. I recall an incident. My brother-in-law, a Talmud of Rav Aaron, when he was still teaching in Yeshiva, uh, in New York before he came on Aliyah prior to Zaliyah to Israel he had arranged to have a pair of tefillin that is my brother-in-law a pair of tefillin written in Gush for his son's upcoming bar mitzvah when the tefillin were ready he arranged with a sofa to bring the tefillin to Ravaran's place at the yeshiva with the understanding that Ravaran would bring them home to Yerushalayim where he lived then and my brother-in-law would pick it up would pick them up at his house. Unfortunately, on the day chosen for the delivery to Rav Aaron, it was raining cats and dogs, a real model. That afternoon, my brother-in-law, who was at a hotel, hears a knock on the door. He opens it, and there stands Rav Aaron, appropriately wet from the rain with, with its fillet in hand. My brother-in-law feeling very uncomfortable said and wanted to make it clear that the understanding was that he was to go to Rabara's house to pick up the fillet, the fillet, not the reverse. Rabara nonchalantly responded that he had to get wet anyway coming from Yeshiva home so why should both of us get wet? Simple logic, right? That was Rabara. Was that chesed? You would say, of course. But I submit that to Rav Aaron that it was simple yashras. It was logical, and if so, it was the norm. Teva, not lemailamina teva. On the other hand, to show consistency or lack of it in Rav Aaron, on the other hand, to try to do a chesed to Rav Aaron was nearly impossible. Before his son Yitzhi moved to Muncie, Rav Aaron would stay at our house when he came to New York. The routine would generally be the same. He would take the late night flight from Lud and arrive early in the morning. Upon arrival, he would pick up his large suitcase from baggage claim and together with his carry-on containing talus and tefillin, and some sperm he needed during the trip on the plane. He would take a taxi directly to the Shulai Davenin, at that time in Forest Hills, Queens. Usually, when I came to Shul, he was already there. After Shul, as we were leaving, I would go over to take the suitcase to the car and walk him to the car. But I never succeeded. Invariably, he would insist on taking the suitcase himself. This would happen every time. I didn't have the nerve to tell him that I was personally embarrassed because people would see both of us walk out of show, he with a large suitcase and a carry-on, and me with the keys in my hand. That's bad enough. Can you imagine that someone might even assume that a Rav Aaron was carrying my suitcase? <laughs> 
Once we arrived home, Rav Aaron felt comfortable. He knew exactly where his room was, the setup in the library for him to work at, either on an article for the Orthodox Forum series with which he was continuously involved, or preparing one or more shiurim that he will be delivering uh, while he was in New York, either at the yeshiva, but sometimes in addition in a community setting. The problem for me anyway was in the kitchen. My wife Dottie, knowing what Ravanan ate and drank, had fully prepared the breakfast so that it was a non-issue. The complication arose when he finished eating. Ravaran insisted on washing every dish, plate, and utensil he used, returning the uneaten food to the proper place, leaving the kitchen spotless. While my wife naturally was thankful, I was not. What a terrible example he gave. <laughs> As I relate this thought, I'm reminded of an incident here in our in our own shul. My wife and I were visiting with the Lichtensteins at their home. One of my grandchildren, Daniel, had recently come for his post-high school year at Gush, so we had arranged for him to meet us at the Lichtenstein home at about the time we were ready to leave to go back to Yerushalayim. He insisted on meeting us outside the home because he felt uncomfortable and too shy to actually meet Rav Aaron at home. Well, sure enough, we had not yet finished the visit when the doorbell rang. <coughs> the Rebison answered the door and insisted that Daniel come in to wait for us. When he came in, a bit reluctantly, he saw us at the table, but no Rav Aaron. Then he turned to the right, looked into the kitchen, and suddenly saw Rav Aaron placing the dirty dishes into the dishwasher. It just blew his mind. <clears throat> All the way to Yerushalayim, he kept ruminating about seeing a gadol, such as Rav Aaron, involved in such a mundane activity. Of course, from my standpoint, as Chatoimi Maskaryom, I wasn't that elated to have my wife observe the incident. <laughs> such is life. Since I referred to my grandson Daniel Agush, I should disclose my personal pride in our family. In our family, there were two generations of Gushies in my direct family and many, many others in the extended family, some of them sitting here today. First, my son Ellie, who spent two years post-high school then a third year after he finished college and before he went on to Columbia Law School and Smicha at Reitz. Then the next generation, grandchildren Josh, who came back to Gush to the Gush Kolel and finished his Smicha studies at Gruss, Daniel, Shai, Tamar, and Miguel Oz, and soon, a couple of months, I guess, you will see another one um, what was his name, Daddy? Kano. <laughs> he was coming for his post-high school. And then we got to the next generation. My oldest great-grandchild, Kovi, is already living on campus with his parents, Josh and Lonnie, 
waiting anxiously until the yeshiva drops the age requirements for attendance. You see, he just turned three. But he's a quick learner. Back to our house. After breakfast, I went off to work at the law firm and sometimes thought he had to leave for a short while to shop or honor an appointment. That left Ravaran all alone, working on his lectures or shear. But now he had another task, answering the phone. Imagine the scene, if you will. The phone rings. Ravaran answers. Sometimes it's for Ravaran, and that's fine. But if it's not, the caller is perplexed. He knows the number he called, but he doesn't recognize the voice. So he asks, Julie? And Ravaran answers, he's not home. The obvious question follows. Who is this? Answer, Aaron Lichtenstein. Dead silence. (laughs) The caller is simply nonplussed. It takes a while until finally Ravaran says, can I take a message? When my wife comes home, our temporary telephone operator dutifully reports to her all the messages. So tell me, folks, how many of you can afford such a high-priced telephone operator? (laughs) I've learned from Rav Aaron that friendship may go well beyond the usual social relationship of people. At times, a true friend can even divine the need of another friend and decide on his or her own to do a kindness, even a major kindness, without being asked. My father, Zal, was nifter on Asar Betebis at the end of 1987. The Kvur was to be in the cemetery of Yeshivas Panevei Brak, as arranged years before by my father at the suggestion of our cousin, Rav Shlomo Berman Zatzal, the son-in-law of the Steichler. When Ravon was informed of the Petira, he, on his own, went to pick up two of my father's grandchildren attending Gush at the time, my son Eli and my nephew Ari, who's here tonight, and brought them to the airport to be Malava, my father to Bnei Brak. There, they stopped in front of the yeshiva. Scores of yeshiva bachrim came out to greet the procession, and at the request of a cousin of mine, Ravarn was mosped my father, following which they proceeded to the cemetery for the Kvura. I can even tell you the substance of the Hespit, but Ellie Weber says that that doesn't fit into the job description I have for tonight. Of course, shortly thereafter, Ravarin Kedarko Bikoda showed up at the Hakoma Samtseva and again, again was mosped my father. There were other such incidents, but I've taken enough of your time we got relating personal vignettes. Let me conclude with what I believe is a relevant Vartar I once heard from the Rubs itself. He pointed out that one could not frame a better job description for Amani B. Israel than Moshe Rabbeinu himself in responding to his father-in-law's reprimand about Moshe's daily schedule. When they have a matter, they come to me, says the Rav, 
That's demonic engaged in chesed. Whatever it might be, a personal problem, a family issue, sometimes intergenerational disputes within a family. Whatever the nature of the issue, that says the Rav, is the manig as the Baal Chesed. But Moshe goes on. V'shafati benish uvein reyehu. And I judge between man and his fellow. Says the Rav, that is the manig as posik, whether purely halachic issues or as a dayan resolving disputes between people. That's the manig who is the posik or shofi. Finally, concludes Moshe, and I make known, I teach the decrees of Hashem and His teachings. That, said the Rav, is the manig in his role as Muhammad or Rosh Hashivah. The Rav then went on to list a series, list a series of, of manhigin through the years and point out which of the three categories each was proficient in? Ashrei Hador. Fortunate is the generation that has the ultimate skia to have as its monarch, as its moradar, a man that is composite, composite personality combined all three of the attributes described and prescribed by Moshe Rabbeinu for Manhigus, the Baal Chesed, the Posek, and the Rosh Yeshivah. Proficient in each, but always the warm, engaging, approachable, pleasant, cordial human being, suffused with humility and integrity. I end as I started. Thank you.